What is atonement? What does it actually mean that Jesus died for our sins? Has traditional Christian theology given us the whole picture? Our guest today will wrestle with these questions for us. Dr. David Moffat is an erudite New Testament scholar and creative thinker who's not afraid to challenge the status quo. Put your hand and mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion. Welcome back to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. I'm Stephanie Hammond here today with my co-host, Jacob Fronsack. How are you doing, Jacob? Oh, what's up? I'm okay. How are you? Doing all right. Just really excited because we've got Dr. Moffat here on, uh, on the podcast today. And we've been really looking forward to introducing him to our listeners because, Jacob, you read his book. I'm sure you realize he's the first strong academic voice, at least that we've heard, that supports our reading of the book of Hebrews. Yeah, yeah. Hebrews is a tough one. There's a lot of stuff out there on Jesus, a lot of stuff on Paul, but Hebrews is, is, uh, is it has some difficult uh, passages in there. It certainly does, and we're going to dive into it today, but Dr. Moffat's new book just came out at the end of last year, and it's titled Rethinking the Atonement, New Perspectives on Jesus' Death, Resurrection, and Ascension. So obviously, Jacob, I mean, it's important to understand atonement. Oh, yeah. It's essential for any follower yeah, of it, Jesus. Well, I mean, it all. I, I went to a couple different Christian colleges, and, uh, it, you know, if they, if they were to ask, you know, uh, how— how is a person saved? And you just said penal substitutionary atonement. Right, you'd probably exactly. you'd probably get at least like a ninety five percent. Like that, get your theory of the atonement gets you pretty much there, right? Yeah, agreed. But um, what does it all actually mean, and are we understanding it correctly? And if that stuff comes into question, I think it's really vital for believers to actually wrestle with. So, his book does just that, and um, we think it needs to be circulated through the entire Messianic Jewish movement. So that's why we're talking about it today. So we'll be speaking with Dr. Moffat on today's episode of Messiah Podcast. And we're excited to welcome him. All this and more coming right up. Well, welcome, Dr. David Moffat to Messiah Podcast. It's really, really great to have you here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, we're, we're excited about this one. Because it's not it's not often that we're able to have someone who has um, written so extensively and meticulously and like academically from a post supersessionist perspective. Now, it's not the majority of scholars. I would say it's probably still a minority in the academy, right? The post supersessionist uh, yeah, perspective. That's probably right. And it's new enough. It's new enough that like not a lot of us were born into it. We didn't inherit this from uh, necessarily fr from our our youth. So I thought I would ask, um, how did you come to this position to to where you now have uh, adopted a post supersessionist perspective? What convinced you? Uh, right. So I just have to say up front, I don't view myself as doing post supersessionist work. I view myself as trying to do good historical work on New Testament texts. 
I did my doctoral training at Duke University and uh, people like E.P. Sanders and Richard Hayes and Joel Marcus, uh, many others were hugely influential on how I do the work I do and the ways that I think about what I'm doing. Prior to that, though, actually, N.T. Wright had actually shown me when I was still just an undergraduate that the Christianity that I grew up with, um, when I started reading some of Tom's work, he showed me that the Christianity I grew up with really didn't think very hard or seriously about the resurrection. Mm, um, I just discovered that I had a Christianity that believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but really didn't think it was that significant, apart from maybe vindicating the work that he did on the cross. As I moved into thinking about doing my doctoral work, I knew that I wanted to do something with Hebrews. This was a text that I could not wrap my head around. It was not doing any of the things that I was told uh, had heard from various pastors, had heard from various seminary professors. Like Hebrews broke all the rules. Like, how do you read scripture this way? That, was, that for me was one of the driving questions. As I got into it, I saw an argument for Jesus' resurrection being important for Hebrews. And that put me right against um, much more traditional, modern interpretations of Hebrews who tended to view the text as saying almost nothing or maybe even denying any notion of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Uh, now, you may be wondering where this is going in terms of your question, but it's basically <laughs> this. As I read Hebrews in, and thought I saw more evidence for Jesus' resurrection, it put me face-to-face -face with uh, an issue that I had not anticipated at all, and that was I couldn't make sense of how Hebrews was talking about Jesus' sacrifice in light of the resurrection being a part of the argument. And where that ended up taking me was a realization that I just didn't even understand sacrifice. With Jesus' resurrection in Hebrews, the language of Jesus passing through the heavens and presenting himself to the Father, appearing before the face of the Father and offering himself as a sacrifice, suddenly meant things that I couldn't figure out. And that pushed me back to Leviticus. I remember thinking like, well, if the resurrection is here, then when the writer says Jesus passes through the heavens and then appears before the Father, he's got to be meaning something other than the cross is the sum total of Jesus offering himself to God as a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But that made no sense to me because sacrifice was killing something on an altar. That's, I knew that that's what sacrifice was. And this thought then occurred to me, like, there's a lot more in Leviticus than simply killing an animal. When that thought occurred to me, I literally went back uh, that night and read Leviticus straight through uh, in one sitting. Wow. And I was mainly looking at all the sacrificial stuff. And I, I asked just one question. What did the death of the animal do? And that that's when the penny for me dropped because suddenly it was very clear, at least I thought it was clear, that Leviticus was pressuring me to think not so much about the death, although that's part of a sacrifice, but much more about presenting the blood and the flesh on an altar to God. Okay, now I apologize. I realize that was a bit of a lengthy introduction, but that's the lead-in to answering your question. Because what I discovered was that the very sort of pressure that I thought Hebrews was putting on me in light of the resurrection to view the focal point of Jesus' sacrifice 
as his entering the heavenly tabernacle and presenting himself as a gift before God in the presence of God, indeed in the heavenly holy of holies, suddenly I saw that Leviticus was pressuring me to think about sacrifice in very similar ways, where the focal point was not on killing the animal, but it was on bringing the blood and the flesh to the altar, and then in some cases even taking the blood into the tabernacle and presenting it before God. And that blew my mind because uh, that was not a concept of sacrifice that I had ever thought about before. It was not something that I was getting from my Christian tradition. But it suddenly occurred to me that Hebrews had taught me to be a better and more careful reader of Leviticus. And that cut directly against sort of standard supersessionist accounts of Hebrews. Because if this was right, and, and this was something that that I felt like was not coming from anything I had thought before, but actually the pressure of the text. But if this was right, then Hebrews understood Jewish sacrifice better than I did as a Gentile 2,000 years later, never even having witnessed the sacrifice. That quite literally is what set me on this course of saying, maybe Hebrews is not uh, throwing all of these Jewish ideas out the window and saying that there was something new, maybe Hebrews is really working with deeply Jewish logics, deeply Jewish ideas on the one thing that everybody knows Hebrews rejects, namely Jewish sacrifice, and actually reading Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice in ways that were highly analogous with Jewish sacrificial practice. That's what set me on a course to, to read Hebrews in ways that were not, in my view, fundamentally supersessionist. That's incredible. You've also answered my next seven questions. No, I'm kidding. But I think um, just to contextualize what you've said for some of our listeners, when you look at the the history of New Testament interpretation and sort of how we got yeah. here, yeah, um, how post supersessionist thought came about, you know, you have back in the 1700s, you have people saying, "Well, Jesus came to fulfill the eschatological." expectations of the Jewish people. You have people, you have Jewish rabbis saying this, like Jacob Emden, you have yeah. um, Rymaris saying this, and mm. and maybe John Toland a little bit. And, and so these ideas were there back then for Jesus. And then in the academy, it became sort of, well, what was Paul doing? And so you have right. this whole thing of F.C. Bauer saying, well, Paul, you know, disagreed with the other apostles and went on to do sort of something different. Right. But then after like 1977, you start finding people saying, well, actually, maybe Paul is a good Jew too. And, but then there was still just like, it's still, Hebrews is still there, yeah. right? Yes, and that's right. like the fi the final domino for <laughs> course, a lot of people yeah. to follow. What do we do with Hebrews? Because it looks really supersessionist. Yeah. And to hear that you're like entry into this way of, of thinking, was from from reading Hebrews. It's like you know you used the video game cheat code and skipped to the end of, uh, of of New Testament interpretation. That's incredibly impressive to me that um, that you were able to do that and just just from reading Leviticus. So major props um, to you for that. But I especially love the fact that you said you're not necessarily going into it. Oh, I'm doing post supersessionist work, but just as a natural result of reading the text and and allowing right. that Jewish yeah. perspective and context, you came to that conclusion. I think that's really telling and wonderful. Well, let's get a taste of this process cuz cuz like you said a lot of people come to come to the Old Testament with what they think they know about the New Testament and everything gets sort of turned upside mm. down. What if we start with 
a basic idea because for i mean hopefully all of our listeners don't have a lot of personal experience with um with animal sacrifices um it's it's a ritual that we're not terribly familiar with in real life and not even really like no not even really familiar with it from a scriptural perspective that's um, right because well i don't know then this is going to sound pejorative but growing up christian i feel like the story of the bible was genesis chapters one two and three and then like the the passion of the Christ just comes after that, um, and there's a whole lot of stuff in the yeah. middle there that sort of gets glossed over. <laughs> and um, indeed, but we do find that when we start digging into the theology, we find this the theology of, for example, the atonement is built on a lot of language that we do find in Leviticus. Mm. However, not really knowing uh, that much about animal sacrifices you know, in practice or even really in theory, uh, I think probably a lot of our listeners would be in that same boat. So can you, you know, help us get into the mindset of an ancient person bringing an animal to the tabernacle or to the temple? Mm -hmm. What is, what are we doing? What is Mm. an animal sacrifice? What does God want a dead goat for? (laughs) Or does he? And what is, what's the, what's the significance of the act of, of, bringing an animal, killing it, putting the blood on the altar, what does that accomplish? What's it for? Well, I mean, this is a, a huge uh, question, as I'm sure you're, you're well aware. I, I think Levitical sacrifice, that's, I think that's an important qualifier. Levitical mm. sacrifice is uh, something that functions within the context of the Mosaic Covenant. You don't get Levitical sacrifice before the Mosaic Covenant, and there's a couple of reasons for that, at least the way it's presented in the Pentateuch. Basically, then, Levitical sacrifice at the tabernacle, this is all about worshiping God and negotiating the relationship in various respects between God and God's people who have been liberated from Egypt. So that's sort of a big idea of what sacrifice is doing. Mm -hmm. Now, within Levitical sacrifice itself, there are different kinds of sacrifices that one offers for very different kinds of reasons. Yeah. And this is something that sometimes we tend to miss when we sort of mash up all the sacrifices and imagine that it's all fulfilled simply by the death of Jesus. The only time that the layperson gets to eat any of the sacrificial meat is when the lay person brings a peace offering, a zevach shalomim, and Passover, which is almost certainly a subcategory of zevach mm. shalomim, mm-hmm. although Passover is a kind of liminal sacrifice. That's the only time that an offerer gets to participate in eating from the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And that sacrifice is not given to deal with any kind of sin problem. It, it doesn't make atonement if we want to use that language. Now, there are other sacrifices then, which you might give freely or because you made a vow to the Lord. Uh, That could include a a zevak shalomim of certain kinds to give thanks to God, but it could also include a whole burnt offering, which is the very first sacrifice Leviticus discusses. There's also a grain offering, which can sort of function in different ways, depending on on what's needed. And there, there seems to be some recognition here that the poor, for example, are not going to be able to afford the cost of offering an animal. So there are some cases in which they can offer grain and it will function uh, in the same way that some of the animal offerings will function. So then the sin offering and the guilt offering. 
Well, these are sacrifices that are given because in the case of the sin offering, there's been some kind of moral fault. Somebody has messed up. And in the case of the sin offering, didn't realize they messed up, but then realized it and, oh, I need to take care of this because it creates a problem between myself and my God. The guilt offering is, is, is offered when you sort of, you know you messed up. You, you knew before you even did it. But of course, it's not the animal that takes the punishment. It's the offerer who committed the sin. Okay, all that is a way of saying then that these Levitical sacrifices are deeply relational. And the role that they seem to play is giving an opportunity to give thanks to God, to praise God, to tell God how much you love him, to celebrate with God and with God's people, or to fix certain problems that have occurred in the relationship based on sin and based on problems that are created by mortality and death, which are threats both to, to God's presence being willing to stay among his people and to the people's safety as they approach God's presence. So that, I think, is a helpful way of reflecting on what Levitical sacrifices are. They, they're gifts that you give to your God as a way of worshiping, praising, giving thanks, and also as a way of trying to restore and heal or fix certain problems in the relationship. So you mentioned that the animal is not, not the one being punished, which I think right. is, I mean, uh, as a baby Christian, like as a small child, that's what it looked like. Mm-hmm. It looked like, yeah. oh, somebody sinned, so so you reassign the sin or the guilt onto this goat or or cow or whatever it is or innocent animal yeah, yeah yeah right right and then it has to die now if i had read it more closely i would have noticed that sometimes you bring cereal grains which right. uh, exactly it doesn't appear uh, you know that the, the metaphor sort of falls apart at that point no. so yes. within that context the, of a levitical sacrifice when you know, the, the blood um, makes contact with the altar and something called atonement mm. happens. Yes, right. Compare, right. What is what is that? Okay, yeah. Um, there are some interesting things that we should pay attention to with Leviticus. Not one time in the Levitical sacrificial accounts is God ever the direct object of compare, Okay. So God is never the one receiving or, uh, you know, the action of whatever happening with Kepare. Now, that is very strange if Kepare means to reconcile, because you would expect that if Kepare meant to reconcile, then God would be the object because he's the one with whom you're being reconciled. Right. When, when we do have statements that involve some sort of conceptual notion of reconciliation, they always are subsequent to the action of Kepare on the altar. So it's after the kapara on the altar that then God will forgive. Okay? And forgiveness conceptually, I can't see any reason why conceptually that's not a reconciling idea. You're bringing people, one offended party, you know, is willing to sort of let things go. Yeah. But since God is not himself the direct object of kapara, in fact, what we get in in the Levitical system is that often the altar is the direct object or parts of the tabernacle. But but how on earth are you reconciling yourself with the altar or with parts of the tabernacle? That doesn't make any sense. No. 
there are several Hebrew Bible scholars, uh, some of whom are Jewish, who have made the argument that this verb really has to do with some notion of purifying or removing some kind of thing that is attached to the altar and to parts of the tabernacle. And that once you remove that, then God is willing to say, okay, I will forgive. Now, two quick points here. The Jewish sacrificial system is is never about manipulating God. Mm -hmm. The prophets are crystal clear on this point. So whatever's going on, it's not like God's willingness to forgive is somehow limited by or manipulated by what's going on in the sacrificial system. Nevertheless, God condescends to give the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the tabernacle to his people as a way of of allowing for him to dwell together with them in their midst. So there's something going on here that we should take seriously, but in no way limits God's freedom to act, uh, nor does it manipulate this God. Yeah. The second thing then is to say that, well, what's going on then if there's something being removed? And we get different metaphors used, but the idea of sin somehow bringing a, a stain or breaching a relationship, that, that some, in some way something happens at God's house, and especially around God's altar, that creates something that's an offense to God, and it needs to be removed. And applying blood to the altar is one of the chief ways that that thing can be removed, after which God condescends to forgive the offerer. That also is not a reductive account of what's going on. Uh, the offerer certainly has to bring repentance. There are times, especially with parts of some of the guilt offering, where confession is clear. There's a lot more going on here. But there is something that has to be removed from the altar by way of blood. In a sense, blood is like some kind of detergent here. It is working to remove, to purify, to cleanse the space where God lives and the altar where his sacrifices are actually brought into his presence so that God's wrath won't break out and so that God's people can approach God himself. And the closest we get to an explanation for why blood can do this is Leviticus 17.11, where I think there's some sort of larger idea of blood being applied to the altar because blood is life, and it's the life which is there in the blood which has the ability to remove whatever this problem is that Kaper is naming. There's a, there's a dense answer. I know there's a lot going on there. But that ultimately, this language of atonement, when it's applied to Levitical sacrifice, is translating this idea of compare. And it mistakenly, in my humble opinion, substitutes the end result of the process with the actual mechanism, which then gets sort of hidden. Because by making atonement, you don't see this purifying mechanism or this removal mechanism. You see the end result uh, that God and, and the offer are somehow restored in their relationship. But that's not, in my view, a helpful translation of, of that verb. Let me use a certain kind of metaphor to illustrate this, right? Or an, an analogy. If I say to someone, go lock the door, well, I think they'll understand exactly what I'm asking in terms of the final state of the door. But there are all kinds of different locking mechanisms, okay? Locking the door doesn't tell you the mechanism. 
it tells you what the final state is supposed to yeah. be. Mm-hmm. But if somebody's trying to tell you how you get to that state, mm. you need different language. You need to say, go turn the bolt or go put the key in or go apply the fob to the sensor and that will lock or unlock the door. And so to say that atonement is going on in this, this sort of bigger sense of reconciling parties is not wrong in terms of Levitical sacrifice. It's just that by translating compare with this language of atonement, it obscures that mechanism. So you don't see what's happening in the process to then give you the end result. That, yeah. That's, I think, how I'd want to mm-hmm. say it. It's not the whole picture, essentially. Yeah, that's which right. Is something we, we happen to come across a lot here on this podcast. Somehow uh-huh, we're not right. getting the whole picture in different aspects. Right. Yeah. I think, and maybe some of our listeners will agree with this so far, it sounds like we might just be dealing with a technical distinction mm-hmm. because once you know the mechanism, lock, you know, locking, we, we all knew we were going to get to locking or unlocking the door <laughs> right, 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 right. at yeah. some, at yeah. some point. Yeah. So what I, what I thought we would do is dig into a few passages in Hebrews and kind of uh-huh. explore how we would come away from these passages with a different viewpoint or how we might interpret these passages differently, being armed, uh, for, forewarned and forearmed with some of this more technical knowledge. Great. And I wanted to start with Hebrews 3, 3 and 4, Yeah, which here it says, um, for he has been counted worthy, he's talking about Jesus, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house, for every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. This isn't the only place in mm. Hebrews, I, I think, where um, where it seems to be saying, well, Moses is down yeah, here, yeah. or Moses is old, and Moses is outdated, or, or however you would, would take away, you know, whatever verbs someone might use there. Yeah. Whereas Jesus is the new thing and the good thing, it, and that the author of Hebrews is, is here now setting up an argument he's going to carry through the whole epistle, which is that the Levitical system is is being replaced. Right. So what is what might he be if that's not the case what what value is there here in Hebrews 3 to seemingly deprecate Moses mm. in favor of mm. Jesus. Yeah, okay. So um yeah, deprecate. That's that's um you, you're absolutely right that many people will read Hebrews this way. One of the problems uh, I, I'm not saying all interpreters say this just to be clear. But some will, will argue that one of the problems is that, you know, the Jewish religion was so concerned with the body and so concerned with these material things. And what Jesus really came to do was to show us that God doesn't really care about, you know, the flesh of your foreskin. Uh, he really cares about your heart. And and by that, then you, you can substitute ideas of spirit and even your body, like the real goal for many people reading Hebrews is for you to sort of wander through this earthly existence or, or maybe slightly more positively, you're a pilgrim who's moving through this earthly existence to get to the point where you die and then your spirit is going to be taken into the heavenly realm where Jesus already is and there you enter this platonic realm of you know, eternal bliss and everything is hunky-dory. Um, oh, I read that book. Yeah, right. Um, so, <laughs> so then if you have that kind of as a background and you read a text like 
like Hebrews 3, 3 through 4, it looks like what, what the author might be saying is, you know, Jesus gets you to this heavenly reality. Moses is still stuck on earth. And, you know, that's bad. And, oh, by the way, that's mm-hmm. Jewish. Um, and we know that you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't go back to Judaism, yeah. you know, however, mm-hmm. the, there are debates about this. Now, there's a lot to say that I think pushes back on that. Again, for me, it all began with resurrection. Because if bodily resurrection, a Jewish notion of resurrection— if that actually is there in this text, then right away it calls into question this kind of dualism. We have throughout Hebrews these comparisons between Jesus and, well, shall we say Jewish things, okay? So you've got mm-hmm. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And Jesus' sacrifice is better, okay? There is no denying that this language of better is a feature of the argumentation of Hebrews. But we need to think hard about how that sort of comparison might actually be working. Because if you have that sort of background I was just discussing in mind, it just becomes natural to read that comparison as better versus worse, or maybe even better versus Mm -hmm. bad. Um, So you have this good thing in Jesus and this bad thing in Moses because it's Mm. all about this world and materiality and bodies. And we know that Jesus came to save us from all this material mess uh, so that our spirits could go and and live in heaven. But, you know, this is not actually a very sharp or bright or intelligent kind of comparison. And when we look at some Greco-Roman texts, we actually get some... some, um, people who, who wrote instruction manuals on how to make good arguments, who make the point that, you know, anyone can compare a good thing and a bad thing. That doesn't show, that's not a very skillful argument. The whole, the real point of these, compa- of good comparative argument is to take two things that people otherwise would think are equal and nevertheless show how one is better. So I, I sometimes will try to illustrate it by saying, you know, which is better, cake or ice cream? Well, okay, neither of these is being viewed as bad, but nevertheless, you might come up with arguments like, well, if it's a hot day, uh, ice cream is better because it can cool you down, okay? Now, I'm not saying that Hebrews is sort of that, you know, limited to to that sort of argument. There there are things about Jesus which are far superior to anything which has come before, not least the fact that he is the eternal son of this God, the Father. But nevertheless, within the kind of arguments that Hebrews is pushing, the whole force of the argument, when you start to look at it this way, begins to flip, where, where what you see is, it's not that Moses is bad. It's precisely that Moses is so great. How much greater is Jesus? Hmm. That's the kind of comparative argument that's being made here. And, and when it comes to this idea of getting access to the heavenly tabernacle, right? What Hebrews is arguing is, as good as these earthly realities are, you now have access to the very heavenly reality that even Moses himself got to see, but that, that the law never actually brought you access to in the way that Jesus does. So that kind of, of comparative argument is not saying that the law is bad. Uh, it's saying that even though the law has certain things that are good, it has limitations. What Jesus brings 
is something that gets above the limitations that the law had. And part of what the author is doing, and I think this is a very kind of Jewish apocalyptic way of thinking about these issues, is then saying that the law is uh, good for its time and place, but ultimately, wouldn't it be better if you could get to the realities that the law itself is contingent upon? Uh, that the tabernacle and then later the temple are themselves in some sense contingent upon. If you could get access to that, that would be better. That's, I think, the argument of Hebrews. And you talked about, you know, that comparison. Yeah. I, and it reminds me at least of a rabbinical interpretation too mm. called Kal Vachomer, mm. which yes. basically says, yeah. you know, by extrapolation, we know, and then all the more so this. So like exactly. if Moses, yeah. then Jesus, if the temple, if the temple, then the heavenly temple, yep. you know, and so it's definitely not <laughs> pitting them against one another. Yes. They're working together. I yeah. think that's right. I, I, I'm personally not of the view that this author would have said, yeah, so now we shouldn't practice sacrifice at the temple. I don't, th- right. I don't think it would have been that obvious to him. So one of the verses that appears to be more strongly um, indicative of, a, of perhaps a supersessionist type of, uh, of thinking is in Hebrews 7, yeah, where we, right. have this, we have this language of, uh, it literally just says a, a change of priesthood, a change of law. And we have mm-hmm. invoked this character Melchizedek, which, you know, growing up in the church, I always felt like this guy was super mysterious and like <laughs> cool and fascinating. Yep. Like shows up <laughs> for about 10 seconds in Genesis and then sort of reverberates throughout um, the Psalms and then shows up here in Hebrews. So he, the author of Hebrews sort of picks this, this, uh, this person out and develops this argument about one priesthood and, and another priesthood. So we did Jesus and Moses, and here we yeah. seem to be sort of maybe Jesus versus Aaron. Yeah, and we have we have two two levels of priesthood yeah. in Hebrews yeah. seven. So the priesthood changes in Hebrews seven twelve, where the priesthood has changed the necess- necessarily that takes a place in, in the in the or that takes place a change in law also. Yeah, and we have this um, idea that the priesthood of Melchizedek again traditionally understood as being the real one, the, the better one, the original one. Are we here saying again that this is more apples and oranges and less apples versus getting punched in the mouth? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, actually, if, if I can sort of work my way into Hebrews 7, I, I would want to start by pointing at Hebrews 8, 4, which says, about the Son of God, about Jesus, if he were on earth, he would not even be a priest because there exists those who offer the gifts in accordance with the law. Mm -hmm. Now now that, if you stop and just think about the logic of that statement, which is actually a sort of summary of the whole argument of Hebrews 7 or of key points in Hebrews 7, that is a shocking statement uh, from the standpoint of Hebrews is about throwing the law under the bus because Hebrews 8.4 has just said, that the law has so much authority that the law prevents Jesus from being a priest on earth. Whoa. Yep. (laughs) I mean, that's really, that's what it's saying. Okay. It's true. No, uh, that is not, that is not a view that is anti-law as far as I can see. If the author's argument was we don't need the law anymore, just get rid of it. 
then how easy would it be to just say, the law doesn't matter. Jesus can be a priest because, um, because he's the son of God, say. Although the author actually argues that it's although he's the son, he learned obedience and became the source of eternal salvation, right? So, so the, the author doesn't actually develop the priestly idea from Jesus' sonship. He brings it together with Jesus' sonship, and that's exactly what the argument of Hebrews 7 is designed to do. It's designed to show how that link is made, and it's designed to show how Jesus can legitimately be confessed as high priest, even though he's not from the tribe of Levi. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the law point comes into play. Because uh-huh. the law says, I mean, Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 5 is fairly clear on this, that the priests come from, from Levi. The author of Hebrews knows that the incarnation itself, in all of its Jewish particularity, put Jesus in the wrong tribe to be a priest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah, which is great if you want to be Messiah, but is <laughs> not so great if you're going to say he's a priest. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's not so great is because Moses slash the law said, if you're going to be a priest, you've got to come from the tribe of Levi. Hebrews 8.4 is just recognizing that that's what the law says, that it has authority, and its authority is so, so strong on this sense that on earth, Jesus can't be a priest because he's from the wrong tribe. But not to worry, because Jesus has, 4.14, passed through the heavens as the great high priest. Hebrews 8.1, the point of what we are saying is this. We have this kind of high priest. He's the one who now sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, which of course Hebrews 1 is already discussed with Jesus being invited, with the Son being invited to sit at God's right hand, echoing Psalm 110. Okay, now that brings us back to Hebrews 7 and, and this text that you've brought up. What is going on with this argument and Melchizedek? However one wants to interpret Melchizedek, and there are lots of options out there, Melchizedek is, for the author of Hebrews, an example of a legitimate priest of God Most High. That's right out of Genesis 14. Priest of God Most High. But what Melchizedek doesn't have is a genealogy. Right. And he says this in chapter 7, verse 3. He is without father, without mother, without genealogy. This is what the writer is picking up on with Melchizedek. How could you be a legitimate priest of God without genealogy? And what's more, as he goes on to say, Melchizedek must be pretty amazing because we all know how amazing Abraham is, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? There's no diminishing of Abraham here. Abraham is amazing, and yet... You know, it's Melchizedek who blesses Abraham. Uh, And Abraham does something that you only do to the Levitical priests. He tithes to Melchizedek. So here's not just someone that Genesis 14 says is legitimately a priest of God Most High. He's a priest of God Most High whom even Abraham respected. Mm -hmm. And we all know how great Abraham is. Uh, So there again is that it's not an argument against these Jewish things. It's an argument working with them. And then on top of that, well, actually, Levi is a descendant of Abraham. So 
so Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High, legitimately, even before Levi is ever born. What is the author of Hebrews doing? He is finding another legitimate priesthood in the cosmos and arguing on earth Jesus can't be a priest. Why? Because Moses said he can't be a priest. And I fully respect that Moses had the authority to give the law and say he can't be a priest. But what if there's another legitimate priesthood? And what if Jesus could belong to that priesthood? And what if that priesthood has nothing to do with genealogy? Well, then Jesus being in the tribe of Judah is no longer something that prevents him from being a high priest. It's just that he's not a high priest of the Levitical order, nor can he be because he comes from the tribe of Judah. Now, in the midst of that argument, uh, I've argued um, that this is exactly one of the ways that the writer leans on the resurrection to make the case. Again, no matter how you think of Melchizedek, what the author finds in Melchizedek is someone who is presented in scripture as not dying. Someone who is who, who continues to live and remain a priest of God Most High. And it's exactly the fact, Hebrews knows full well that Jesus died. I mean, it's actually in Hebrews 2, which I think is an allusion to the Passover account. The author knows that Jesus died. So how can the author then say that Jesus is a high priest who remains forever? Well, it's precisely because Jesus arises to an indestructible life. He arises to a different set of categories that qualify him now for this different priesthood. So it's precisely in the resurrection that the creaturely life of the son is like the creaturely life of Melchizedek. And this becomes the way in which Jesus can be qualified to be a high priest, but not in the earthly sphere and not under the Levitical strictures, which still apply on earth. He is a high priest because he has this kind of life which allows him to enter the heavenly tabernacle and to pass through that structure and enter the heavenly holy of holies and now present himself as an offering and serve as a high priest who ministers before God in that space, whatever that space whatever that space is, whatever it looks like, however it functions. Jesus has gone there, and that's where he's high priest, and that's where he serves as high priest. And that's why in Hebrews 7.25, the author will say that um, he is able to save his people completely because he always lives to intercede for them. He is doing his high priestly ministry now before the Father, exactly along a model of what happens in Leviticus 16, with the high priest on the day of atonement, who goes in? Now, what does that all mean then for this question of the law in Hebrews 7.12? Well, there are two things that I think are going on here. And probably the most significant one is to recognize that the, the writer can use this language of law in two different ways. When he's talking about the law that is somehow changed, what he's talking about is the law that applies to how you can be a legitimate priest. And the law that applies on earth to how you are a legitimate priest, see Hebrews 8.4, is uh, the law of Moses. 
But if Jesus has changed this location, and if he's able to do that, not least because of the resurrection, which gives him a kind of life that looks in some way like Melchizedek, well, then there are a whole different set of categories that apply. That's the change that's happening, uh, I think, in Hebrews 7.12. He's there talking about a specific notion of the law that stipulates how you become a priest. And on earth, it's genealogy. But in heaven, it's not. And proof that there is a legitimate priesthood not based on genealogy comes right out of Jewish scripture itself in this figure of Melchizedek. Now, he does back out and I think talk more broadly about the law and, and say the law never actually was able to bring people into God's heavenly presence the way Jesus can. And in that sense, I think he's making an argument that, again, many Jews, I'm not saying that Jews of the time would have just agreed with this, but there would be a sense in which, especially if this is a kind of apocalyptic Jewish way of thinking, what the author is saying is that right now you get access to something that's even greater than what uh, the people in Jerusalem can get access to. Because right now, through Jesus opening the way, this is in Hebrews 10 in particular, you get to go into the heavenly holy of holies. You get to approach the throne of grace, which is, I think, language that echoes the Ark of the Covenant in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. Boldly, you get to do that because of Jesus. And that's better, okay? It's not against the Jewish stuff in Jerusalem, but it is better because you're going, again, this is a place that Moses somehow saw, but that Jesus has actually entered. And what's more, unlike Moses, Jesus gets to stay there, right? He gets to sit at God's right hand and now perform his high priestly ministry in perpetuity. And that, for, for the author of Hebrews, that's better. I hope that answers the question. I think so. It answers it answers a lot of questions. I feel like for a lot of people when they're reading Hebrews they're thinking that when Hebrews talks about going into heavenly places and yeah. offering himself or offering blood that that it's like a metaphor. Like Yeah, that's and it's, right. And it's right. and it's really just like he died for your sins. That's don't, right. Yeah. Don't, don't try to over uh, don't overthink it. it. Whatever you do, um, don't yeah. overthink it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas what you're saying is actually the fact that Jesus came back from the dead, literally, and then literally entered into, you know, in Jewish cosmology, it would be like a, a an actual heaven yeah. in which there's an actual sort of throne room or temple or something like yeah. that, and that yeah. and that Jesus is there, and that uh, that that aspect of his ministry actually when talking about atonement we need to be looking more at that and not so much just that he died would that be accurate to say yeah that, that's exactly right and uh i think in a nutshell the way you just put it is one of the biggest reasons why many people have not seen the ways in which jesus resurrection in hebrews contributes to the argument because a bodily resurrection a discrete event that is distinct from the death, as opposed to a notion of resurrection as just itself spiritual ascent into God's heavenly presence, right? That suddenly makes it very difficult 
to have a simple metaphor approach because the resurrection creates a, a causal, logical, and temporal gap between Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus then offering himself to the Father in heaven. If you put resurrection in, the metaphor suddenly begins to fall apart. It's precisely by not having the resurrection or by redefining resurrection in terms of heavenly ascent, the spirit leaving the body. It's precisely by doing that that you can keep together much more closely the crucifixion with Jesus' presentation of himself as an offering. Now, throw into the mix then certain misunderstandings that we today have about sacrifice, like you kill animals on the altar. Well, if you just know that you kill in Levitical sacrifice, you take an animal to the outer altar, you kill it on the altar, and then you take the blood, if you do, into the tabernacle, you will find Hebrews commentators who, who argue that this is what Hebrews is thinking. Well, there's a fundamental problem with this argument, and it's that no animals are ever killed on the Jewish altar. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is just a misunderstanding that most of us have. Mm -hmm. But if you actually look at Leviticus, it is crystal clear. Uh, Leviticus tells you in certain cases that you kill the animal in the forecourt, you know, or you kill it uh, in a space, a special space to the north side of the altar. Um, yeah. And what's more, uh, in Leviticus, at least in the Masoretic text, it's the offerer who typically kills, who kills many of the, at least the individual sacrifices. Uh, but only the priest can approach the altar. But so if the offerer kills the animal, but only a priest can approach the altar, well, you can't be killing the animal on the altar. And then the third thing is, there's always a fire burning on, on the outer altar. And <laughs> it's, just, it's just not, I mean, Try not to think too hard about, like, how would you put a live animal in the midst of the fire, yeah. slit its throat, collect its blood, you're reaching into the fire. It doesn't make any sense at all. No, and no yet sense. we all assume that that's what happens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, if Hebrews knows that that's not how sacrifice works, according to the Levitical pattern, the confusion between the cross and the altar that we assume is not going to be a natural thing for a Second Temple Jew to assume. They're not going to just assume that, you, that the cross must be the altar because that's where Jesus died. They're not going to assume that you kill things on the altar. They're going to know that you don't kill things on the altar. Rather, when sacrifice involves killing at all, you kill it away from the altar, and mm -hmm. then a priest brings it to the altar to offer it to God. It's when you offer it to God that then compare in Hebrew, you know, but atonement ideas can happen. And then especially on one time a year, the day of atonement, Leviticus 16, the animals are slaughtered. Their blood is then taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, where it is offered to God. Hebrews says this explicitly in Hebrews 9 verse 7. So Hebrews knows how sacrifice works. And, and right. Hebrews knows how the Day of Atonement works. And, you know, there, there is no killing of the animal on the altar. Uh, and the focal point, moreover, is not on the killing of the animal, but on bringing the elements of the animal into God's presence. And so, you know, what I would want to argue on that point then is that th this is exactly what the ascension is doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is exactly, again, why the metaphor that you talked about set up this question 
doesn't work for Hebrews because the death is not metaphorically read as the offering. It's rather the ascension when Jesus enters the very place that the Jewish high priest entered to offer the blood as a sacrifice. Jesus does that when he ascends into the heavenly tabernacle and then goes into the heavenly Holy of Holies and offers himself. If the bodily resurrection is in that mix, then there's no way to read this as some kind of simple metaphor to describe the cross as the self-offering. It's Mm. precisely, just like the high priest on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, it's precisely the direction of entering God's presence. That's where Jesus offers himself. Wow. Good stuff. Well, I, I have about 10 more questions, which means we're, we're probably <laughs> going to have to pester you to come back for a future episode. <laughs> I think so. I yeah. think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> but I, but before, before we sign off, I thought I'd give yep. you the chance to, um, to tell us a little bit about what, what you're working on now. Your book, Rethinking the Atonement, came out last year from Baker yeah. Academic in cloudy Grand Rapids, Michigan. But what's <laughs> next for David Moffat? Um, so I, I'm currently working on a, a, a book that really tries to get into the nitty-gritty detail of sacrifice. And it doesn't just look at Leviticus. It looks at the way that Leviticus is being interpreted in Second Temple Jewish texts and practice, insofar as we can get access to this. Um, it might also dabble in some sort of Hellenistic or Greco-Roman sacrificial ideas as well, because these New Testament texts eventually, very quickly, uh, are going to be read primarily by Gentiles. And they're not going to have the same kinds of categories. So what sorts of things are they bringing as they imagine sacrifice? It's very different Mm -hmm. in many respects from what a Jewish reader who had been to the temple and seen sacrifice happen, assuming that kind of reader, right? They would understand sacrifice in a very different way. What would people who knew uh, the texts and maybe had been to Jerusalem and seen it happen what are they most likely to have assumed would be going on? But then the point would be to then go to the New Testament and ask, okay, do we see places in the New Testament where some of these ideas, which don't imagine that at the temple you killed animals on the altar, for example, right? Which actually focus more on bringing a gift into the presence of God by actually taking it into his house. Are, are there places where... Early, other early Christian texts, in addition to Hebrews, might show evidence that they're thinking in similar ways. But I do think there's actually more in the New Testament that suggests that early Christians thought seriously about the ascension of Jesus as his bringing his offering into God's house, into the heavenly temple, and bringing it before God's presence uh, that is into the heavenly throne room, and then of course, you know, sitting at God's right hand. We'll look beyond Hebrews, but hopefully, we'll establish. Uh, I hope with some authority that we really don't understand sacrifice, and that that we're just not right if we assume that it's about killing animals on an altar, and that somehow the animal was bearing your sin uh, and these sorts of concepts. Part of what I'd want to argue is that there's way more going on at various points in the story of Jesus, life, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, than just sacrifice, okay? Mm -hmm. But insofar as we want to think about sacrifice, 
it's a mistake to conflate or confuse a lot of some of these other ideas with what's going on in sacrificial models of the particular work that Jesus does to save his people from their sins. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to read that one. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has just been a truly enlightening and really helpful conversation, not just for us, but for our listeners, I think, really bringing something new to consider. And can't wait to read upcoming works from you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's it's been a delight uh, to have this conversation. So we are so glad to have you here. Thank you for coming. Absolutely, yeah. Wow, well, what a privilege to be able to hear directly from Dr. Moffat about all these themes in his book that are so vital to understanding the real work of the Messiah and how that impacts our perspective on our faith. Jacob, any takeaways? Oh, it's always it's always a pleasure and a, like a thrill to find some a, a member of the academy, a PhD whose interpretations resonate so clearly and so deeply with the with our uh, our post supersessionist view uh, of the New Testament, and to be able to to be able to have him here all the way from Scotland without having to pay however however much it costs mm-hmm. to, to go to St Andrews myself and and uh, undertake an, <laughs> an, an education there, you know it's a privilege that I'm very happy to share with our listeners today. Same here. I couldn't agree more, and I'm I'm looking forward to getting him in here for another conversation. Oh yeah, sometime soon for sure. Well, until then, we've got lots of more ground to cover with this podcast, so I hope all of our listeners will keep tuning in. And don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends and your family. Until next time, I'm Stephanie Hammond. And I'm Jacob Franzak. Shalom. Shalom. Let his word cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea